Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski. Thank you so much for joining us on episode number 112 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest is a three-time WSOP bracelet winner, a former WSOP player of the year, and has $3.4 million in live career earnings. With those numbers, they're, they're very impressive, but poker is not this man's primary gig. He's a tremendously successful businessman and entrepreneur who has run multiple companies since his first one in his mid-20s. And while he's one of the friendliest players you'll ever get to share a table with, he has another previous occupation that may just surprise you. Today, we peel back the many layers of the proverbial onion that is Frank Casella. Frank, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's really good. I'm, I'm, this sort of came together. I was fortunate enough to see you last month in Las Vegas, and uh, you're kind enough to sort of like, you know, point out, hey, happy to, happy to podcast anytime. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, sometimes I have to be my own PR team, I think. <laughs> there you go. We'll, we'll definitely get the word out and, and uh, you know, <laughs> folks are going to get to know you a little bit better. I mean, there's, you know, from the intro alone, we tried to pack it in there, um, but there's so much to get through. You have an, an incredible life, both at and away from the felt. Let's just sort of start with how you discovered poker in the first place and, and how it hooked you. Well, um, when I uh, first moved to Memphis, Tennessee in 1993, they had just opened Riverboat Casinos in Tunica, Mississippi. It's about an hour south of Memphis. And so it got to be sort of the social thing to do in Memphis for a number of years to go down on a Friday night, eat at the buffet and then gamble for a while. And most of my friends would play blackjack or slot machines or whatever. And I tended to just go to the poker room. I could sit there and play, you know, one to five stud or, you know, whatever, and have a couple beers. And even if you did terrible, you couldn't go through more than 50 or hundred dollars. Sure. So that was just something I got to do. And then in 2000, I got divorced and I had four kids and businesses. So, and we went every other week with the kids. So every other week I wasn't dating anybody or whatever. I had nothing to do in the evenings. Mm. And I started going down to the horseshoe and, you know, just started playing cash games, eventually got myself up to the 2040 limit hold'em table and uh, played some of the PLO games that we had in Tunica. We had a lot of really good games, actually, in Tunica back in 2000, many, many years ago. So, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, you rose through the ranks and that's a, a typical poker story. You know, those who've made it and been, been successful. But how did you learn those games to begin with? How did you get into cards? Well, I mean, I mean, I came from a family, you know, like a Polish Catholic family in Chicago and we played cards of all kinds there. So I knew how to play a lot of the card games. But when it comes to playing, you know, casino format, like something like 20 limit, 2040 limit, hold them. That's not really anything you learn at your cousin's house usually when you're a right. kid. Mm -hmm. So I, I in Tunica, I actually started playing four eight, and then I'm sure I, you know, donated quite a bit before I had any sort of good feeling for the game. But it, well, like I said, I was just going down there to kill time, right? Most of the, you know, have some food and hang out with people, you know, rather than stare at four walls and a TV. And uh, then I, I moved up to playing um, ten twenty, and then twenty twenty forty was our big game. And generally, I would try to go down there you know, consistently just build a little bit up over the course of three or four sessions throughout the week. And then on Saturday night, I'd play the PLO game and donate all my money because <laughs> it was a good lineup of people and it took quite a while. So I would, you know, just sort of farm the 2040 game to have enough money to throw away playing 510 or 510 and a quarter PLO until I figured out how to play that. So killing time is one thing, you know, and, and you know, at, at some point, though, you know, you're moving up in stakes because you're beating the games and you want the bigger challenge. Was it sort of like a, a video game kind of thing and you just want to sort of beat the end boss or was it, you know, trying to make some good money on the side? Like what was motivating you to, you know, keep trying and, 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 and you know, trying to trying to win hard? Well, you know, when you go through a divorce, they're pretty expensive, especially, um, you know, I had started, you know, my wife and I had nothing when we got married and started businesses and we were successful. So that was expensive for a while. So extra cash was nice. It wasn't my primary motivating factor. Luckily, I was already 
successful by then. I didn't really need the money, but just having the money coming in was pretty good. Nice. And um, about, I don't know, about three or four months into playing on the regular, um, a friend of mine, actually my VP of sales at the time, um, mentioned rounders that movie rounders and he i had never heard of it or seen it so he brought he bought me the videotape and brought it to me and i watched it and i said i'm gonna go play that world series of poker and uh you know i had i did i had what's funny is i had never played in a poker tournament at that point oh wow i had never yeah all i wanted to do was go play the main event so and i didn't know what like a poker festival was so i called the horse and it took a minute for the for me and the woman I was communicating with to eat, for her to even understand that I was specifically talking just about the main event. Because I was like, when does the World Series start? And she's like, what's going on right now? And I said, oh, shit, I missed it. <laughs> and she's she was like, well, no, no, what's going on right now? And, and I really didn't even understand what she was talking about. So I had time to get out there. I got myself a room at the Mirage and I loaded up and I flew to Vegas. And, you know, the day I was the day of the, I believe actually 2000, we only had one day one. Um, the worst part about let, like getting down there and getting bought in is once you got bought in, you had the big whiteboard. Have you heard about this? Yes. Where they would, they, everybody's name would get written on there and then they would just randomly pull it out. Well, you inevitably had, you know, your Scotty wins and your Phil Helmuth or whoever wanted to show the fuck up at, two in the afternoon. So they would wait until they had finally shut down the buy-in and then they draw all the seats. Wow. So, yeah. That was pretty cool when they got around to doing the, the computerized seating. Um, but anyway, I got, you know, went down to the horse. You had no idea how to buy into a tournament. I had to, uh, I went to the, the tournament area upstairs and you, could, you can't buy in there. You had to use the lammers. Couldn't get the lammers there. I had to go back downstairs to get those. I mean, I was as noob and, you know, and and then literally the very first hand of no limit hold'em I ever played was at the main event in 2000. That is kind of crazy. <laughs> wow. What a, oh, my goodness. What, and, and did that experience, I mean, it's one thing, you know, to say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And you see it in the movie. Obviously, you know, you are a, a player of the game. You know all the different, you know, you're, you're not intimidated in that respect, but when you get there and you're experiencing all those sorts of difficulties, like literally never having played a poker tournament before, never having played No Limit Hold'em before, did you ever hesitate and say, I'm going to go ahead and plunk down $10,000 to play in this thing that I don't really understand that much? Well, like I said, luckily I didn't need the money I had made playing poker. I'd actually been hanging on to most of the cash. And so it was, it was not that, you know, it was why I flew out there to do it. You know, I told him, I was like, I'm going to go play that main event. He was, my buddy was literally sitting in the office with me and I hit my phone, you know, on speakerphone and dialed the horseshoe. You know, I couldn't back down. I'd already thrown it out there. So, wow. but you know, and, and honestly, I don't. This is difficult probably for people to even understand now because No Limit Hold'em is ubiquitous. And even if you're going to a casino to play it for the first time, you've probably played it at a bar or a country club or a neighborhood game, you know, but I, it, I had literally no clue how to do it. And the weirdest thing was sitting down and realizing, especially since all I'd ever been playing was 20, 40 limit, you know, raise was going from $20 to 40 or 40 to 80. So I just, my betting structure and my sizing, I, I can't even imagine what the people at the table must've thought. I mean, it had to be funny, but I made it to the dinner break. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's an incredible, I mean, like, so, you know, you, you didn't cash. Okay. But what did you come out of that experience with? Like, was there a determination of, I got to learn this no hold, no limit hold'em thing, or, or that was fun. And, you know, I, I did my thing. Maybe I won't be back and I'll stick to my games in Tunica. Well, you know, I had brought a decent bankroll out there to play with. So after I busted that, I went to the Bellagio and this is before we had built Bobby's room in there. So the upstairs thing was just the only high, what high limit area. And we were playing, I believe it was 200, 400 limit. So I just grinded out the next three or I don't remember how long I was here, three or four days. And, you know, I did well, you know, made back more than I had, you know, squandered on getting into the main event. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Like I said, it was all an experience. But sure. what was interesting about it is, I, you know, just realizing how much bigger the games were here. And, you know, Vegas is significantly nicer than Tunica. 
Mm-hmm. So I just, uh, after that trip, I started going to Vegas on the regular. I got to a point where I was probably flying to Vegas every three or four weeks to play. Wow. Unbelievable. And then, then, you know, you're still playing in the cash games and you're seeing you know, the, you know, the glitzy side and the great games and stuff. At what point did, you know, playing tournaments become more something that you were into and, you know, I guess learning through experience or were there, you talking to other players or reading any of the books out there? How'd that go for you? No, they, actually the only poker book I ever read was, um, uh, Doyle's second book, the super system. That's the only poker book I ever read. I've never, I've really, really been much for studying. Um, <laughs> I just kind of wing it. <laughs> Anybody who's with me can tell you that. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't know. I just got into what was the next thing? I think after that, I, the next like experience that I had in tournament was probably winning a seat on ultimate bet to play in their Aruba thing. I think that was probably the next year, or it may have been the world poker open here. We started doing the world. Not, yeah. Here in, I'm in Memphis right now. Sorry. I sometimes the hell I'm at, but um, gold strike casino, which was an MGM uh, Mirage property and uh, um, Binion's horseshoe. They worked together to put on the world poker open. And it was a great tournament series that we had here every January. So we would play that like January, February. Then we'd do LAPC. I started getting into going out to LA and then the World Series. And then when uh, I guess it was after Caesars bought the World or the Horseshoe and they got the World Series that they moved it to the summer. We got used it. to do it like March, April. Got it. So your first live tournament cash on the Hendon Mob is from. 2003 in Pot Limit, Omaha. And obviously it's not often we see, uh, you know, folks' first ever cash being a non-holding game. So, you know, we've established why that's the case. So between 2000 and 2003, though, you know, you had obviously experienced lots of success moving up and playing, you know, super high stakes in the mixed games. What was that sort of learning experience, learning curve for you like tournament wise when okay and, and how did that first cash feel when you finally you know walked away not empty-handed well it wasn't like i said i played the main in 2000 i skipped the main in 2001 so i probably didn't play any poker tournament 2001 and then i i played the main again in 2002 and the 2003 uh world poker open thing in tunica that that plo event was probably the first series where I went down to Tunica and played multiple events. And then to get a a better handle on no limit hold'em, what I would do, and I always recommend this to anybody that's new and in playing tournaments, I would just grind the single table satellites all day long. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not only did it give you a better feel for, you know, bet sizing and how to play no limit hold'em in general, but it also gives you really good practice for final table type play when you play from 10 people down to one. Um, And I think, you know, anybody that, you know, people who want to start playing no limit hold'em poker tournaments on the regular, you you have to invest in that kind of learning because if you're not sitting down at a poker tournament to win it, there's no fucking point in sitting down. And if you don't have hardly any experience playing from 10 down to one, I mean, sometimes when you sit down at a final table, you can look around and go, okay, I'm definitely going to end up top, two, three, four, maybe if I get bad beat, I get knocked out before that. But I mean, if you sit down, you can sometimes sit down with people. You can just tell they're, they have no idea how to go shorthanded play to go from 10 handed down to three or four handed. Right. Well, you know, you're probably best known as the 2010 player of the year. And you're looking back at the results and stuff, you know, and at the WSOP in particular, you got one cash in 2008, two in 2009, what all of a sudden happened at that point in time that 2010, you have six caches, two bracelets, and, and $1.2 million in winnings? Well, I think if I'm trying to remember, it's hard to remember. Like, I haven't looked at my hand and mob stuff in a long time. <laughs> That's our job, but right? <laughs> if you go back, you can see that I sort of run in streaks before that anyway. Um, yeah. If I one final table, I'll make two or three in the course of, you know, 
a week or two. And I think a lot of it, it's, it's probably pretty common for a lot of people that play poker. You just get into a zone where you see the ball better and your head's in the game and you're just confident in the moves that you're making. You're paying more attention to what's going on. And I've, I always felt like even before then, if I could get into a rhythm and hit something big early on in a WSOP, I got a shot at player of the year. I had, I had a friend of mine. I used to tell him that he thought I was crazy, hmm. but uh, you know, I did it. Well, prior to that, you know, what's thought of as your breakout the, the 2010, you had had, you know, a couple of five figure scores, a couple of six figure scores, I mean, the world, you know, I, I remember myself as well. Who's Frank Casella? That was like a new name, right? At what point do you feel that you reach that level of, okay, I'm hanging with the big boys. I'm one of the best players in the world. Well, I mean, in 2005, I, I could have easily won my first bracelet in 2005. And that would have changed a lot about, I guess, the way that people view that or other mm-hmm. people view that. But um, you know, we had made a, uh, a pop limit hold'em final table, and it was Phil Locke, me, Johnny Chan, and another guy I don't remember. And Johnny and I had the chips all day long, and we had the 85% of the chips locked up between us. It was a crazy night, too, because it was the same night that Jennifer Tilly won her bracelet for That's the ladies. 2005, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right behind us, and ESPN is taping Freddie Bagnati and some other sleeper guy. I mean, I love Freddie, don't get me wrong, but he's not exciting television. And, <laughs> and they've got locked up over here. They won't get out of the way because they wanted to, because Johnny was going for his 10th bracelet and Phil Locke was at the table doing push-ups and acting like a nut. So they wanted to move up. Actually, they probably wanted to move Jennifer over too. I'm sure they would have rather had anything on the team. But anyway, so this was all going on and I had position on John and I felt like I had him in a good spot if I could just run into a, you know the right situation hand-wise because he felt like you could tell he felt like I was pretty much full of shit on most moves I would make. So he opens for a pot level raise and I look down, I got pocket aces. And so I just pop him right back up, three bet him like I'd been doing all day long and thought this could be the shot. And it comes back around to him and he repots it. And that gives me the ability to go all in on the next raise. And uh, he snap calls with pocket Queens. And I mean, this, there wasn't a lot of barrier between us and the crowds at that point. And everybody in the room was trying to see whether or not Johnny would be the very first person to win a 10th bracelet. So there was a lot of people in the room and it was really loud. And the flop comes out, queen, king, king, and the crowd erupts. You know, they're just thrilled that, you know, that John's not going to get knocked out because I had him covered. So right. he would have fourth place. Um, anyway, that's the way the hand ran out. I didn't hit an ace or another king, so I uh, lost and was crippled at that point. I was I got knocked out in fourth, but I mean, if that hand holds up, you know, John ended up uh, heads up with Phil a few hands later, and you know, just I just I mean, when you're playing pot limit hold'em, especially when the chip divides that big, it's just sort of easy easier to lean on somebody and be done when your head's up. Right. Um, so I'm pretty confident that had I got there, I would have won the bracelet also if that hand holds up, but you know, it didn't. And I probably didn't play as much like in 2006, seven, I felt like I started playing a lot more again, like in eight, nine and, uh, you know, 10 was when I hit player of the year. Sure. Well, uh, you know, you've discussed now your your forays into No Limit Hold'em. Uh, your bracelets uh, in 2010 came in Stud 8 and in Raz, and you got a third bracelet in 2017 in No Limit Do 7 Single Draw. Obviously, uh, you know, mixed games are, are your thing far more than No Limit Hold'em. Why, sure. though? What do you love about those games in particular that's uh, the non-Cadillacs of poker? I, you know, I feel like I'm a really good stud player, and I think you know, from a draw point of view, I feel like I'm definitely one of the best draw players around. So I'm very comfortable in those games. I can't really, I mean, there wasn't any particular feature that necessarily attracted me to it. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to go to the World Series of Poker and you want to be player of the year, you kind of have to be willing to play every damn game they post. Um, even back before, you know, this is before we really did eight game mix. I don't think we did eight game mix in 10. We had just started doing the horse event, I think, a couple years before that. 
Um, but anyway, yeah, you, you had to, you know, we did have, uh, you know, variations of triple draw, no limit deuce, pot limit Omaha, all the variations of stud. And you had to be able to sit down and play all that stuff. So I just made sure I learned it and got better at it. Do you have a favorite among them? Oh, I love no limit deuce. No limit deuce is just so much fun to play. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think anybody who plays mixed games on the regular just loves the draw games. They're just so much fun. Right. But fun is not a word I often hear associated with no limit, do seven, single draw, triple draw, perhaps uh, limit, but single draw tends to be a very pure uh, type of game. Why would you call that fun when there's obviously, uh, you know, like, like Lonely Hold'em, you could lose everything in one hand? Well, I mean, I think it uh, probably it has to boil down a lot to who I am at the table, like the mm. way I play. I don't, uh, you know, I don't study the books and I don't read the charts. And, you know, I mean, I can figure out most of the percentages that I need to figure out, but I'm not, you know, I'm no math genius, but I talk a lot and I get people to open up and step outside of themselves and do things that they might not normally do at the poker table. And when that's your angle, when that's the wedge that you can kind of apply pressure with, um, it's, you know, no limit deuce is kind of the game you want. Mm -hmm. You nice. know, you just, especially, you know, especially with the group of people that we play it with, it's not like you sit down to a table full of fucking strangers when you're buying into the no limit deuce tournament. I mean, it's people that like at this point that it's like going to a high school reunion. Sometimes when you go to the world series, it's people you see every year that you've known for 20, 25 years. That's pretty cool. And it's funny. Cause like that sentiment, I, you know, I remember seeing all the stuff, you know, that's what the whole of the world series of poker used to be, you know, the gamblers convention. And it's nice that that vibe kind of still remains within the mixed game, you know, smaller community uh, to this very day. Um, you know, you are, a, I'm just wondering, are you kind of like a, a purist, the, you know, like the, the games that are spread perhaps at most, you know, the 20 and the dealer's choice, or are you also a fan of the new games that have been popping up, you know, the Raz Doogies and, and the Drama Haas, you know, what's, what's your view on the, the new mixed games? I play anything. I don't care. I love all the games. I don't really care what they are. Uh -huh. I mean, Badoogie's now one of my very favorite games. Badoosie and Badacy are kind of an ass whip because they take long to play the hands and you chop them almost all the time. And uh -huh. then... You know, the drama hog games, I think, are a shitload of fun, but, you know, I don't know. It's, again, one of those situations where you're chopping so many of them up, it's hard to play those in a tournament format. It just kind of drags for a while. Having them in a mixed game is is, is great, but um, I love to play any version of, of poker or right. whatever you call There's some people that claim Badoogie's not poker. but <laughs> I think it's a great game. I'm a big fan, but that's the real well, great four-card four game. <laughs> From the technical variation that you're not even trying to create a five-card hand. It's just not – it's the only version of anything similar to that that we play where at the heart of it you're not trying to make a five-card hand one way or another. Right. That That is that is a fair point. Um, That's the – making it. Fuck it. I love the do. Well, the majority uh, of your recorded tournament results, they are from the WSOP. Sometimes you cut a couple other big events you play, the, you know, the recent WPT World Championship, uh, the 25K uh, PSPC, the first one that you played in. But there's also a few WSOP circuit stops in there and the Run Good series. You know, obviously you've got, uh, you know, a lot of businesses that you're running, very busy moving from, from place to place, as you had mentioned. And, and we will discuss that more, but, you know, how do you choose which events you want to play at and which stops you attend? Well, like right now I'm in Memphis um, because I did my Memphis companies. Um, I have multiple companies here in Memphis and we do kickoff parties every year for our businesses. Mm. So I'm in Memphis for the kickoff that we had Friday. And then the WSOP circuit main is starting on Thursday. So since I'm here, and I have two adult kids that like to play poker. As a matter of fact, my oldest son's very good at No Limit Hold'em, way better than I am. Um, and he likes to play, but he, you know, they work, they got regular jobs. So I'm taking them down there and giving them a free roll because they got their birthdays this month. And uh, so that's how I picked that event. Last mm -hmm. week, I was in Dallas for the kickoff party there. And my brother said, hey, the circuit event is in Choctaw. And I went and played that one. So I fired a bullet into that last week. 
Um, usually when you see those kind of weird things on the, it wasn't like I went and played a whole schedule. I was uh-huh. just there for a week and I heard there was poker happening. <laughs> nice. Well, one place, uh, folks, uh, are used to seeing you is under the lights, uh, in the poker go studio, sometimes with the live stream cash games. Uh, what's it like to play in that environment? Uh, you know, relatively few people in the poker world have gotten that privilege. Oh, it's fun. I mean, I don't shit. I don't know. It's it's definitely the nicest setup that we've ever had to mm. be able, you know, to do a taping for poker TV. I mean, it's wonderful. And Maury's staff is, in, you know, they're just very, very good at what they do. I mean, it's just it's top notch. They know what's going on. Everything looks good the way they got it set up with, you know, cocktails and food and the cashier. I mean, it's just cool. It's it's I mean, if you were going to have a poker studio in heaven. I'm sure that's how God would have set it up. Wow. You got, you hear that Maury? That's good. You got y'all done good. <laughs> and I've been there. It's, it's pretty damn amazing to watch just from a real birds perspective or attend an event there. It's uh, pretty amazing. Um, yeah. You know, folks, uh, you know, whether you've uh, only been familiar with Frank from watching him on the streams, or if this is your first exposure to him here on the cards chat podcast, it's pretty obvious. He's a friendly guy, garrulous, someone who's, Pretty darn fun to talk to. I appreciate that very much. And that's the kind of vibe, Frank, that you do bring to the felt. Why is that important to you to sort of keep it lighthearted and friendly? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, when, when we're sitting around at any point playing in a poker tournament, we're like the top 1,000th, 1% luckiest people on the planet. There's no reason to be in a pissy mood while you're doing it. I mean, especially because it's a card game. You know, I just, I don't know. I just, I hate seeing people in a bad mood. I hate seeing people treat dealers or other players bad. You know, I'm always going to do my best to try to keep the mood light. And plus it's, like I said, it's sort of the, it's the uh, angle that I take on, you know, setting the table for me to be able to run it over. So in that specific regard, uh, I'm wondering if this was just a ploy or what you were up to when uh, in 2020, I'm not sure exactly which event it was, but at the WSOP, there was a table full of players. Every single player at the table was getting massages and you were smack dab in the middle of it. What was that all about, Frank? (laughs) You don't really see that. (laughs) Yeah, we we were playing. It was Oh, shit, I don't even remember what it was. It was something at the beginning of the series. So it wasn't a very big buy-in event. We were, you know, we had been drinking. And the room, you know, they had a ton of the masseuses walking around in there. Nobody was nutting up and getting a massage. And I mean, if you go to the World Series much and you see live play and you see me at a table, generally I'm getting massaged. I like the massages. And I just hated seeing the girls, you know not having anything to do. So I just bought everybody at the table. I don't even remember it. Well, I just bought them like a 20 minute massage. It wasn't tons, <laughs> but it wasn't, that wasn't any sort of a strategy, but what, what's, it's funny that you mentioned that because there were multiple hands after that, where people made certain decisions on calling or throwing away a hand and said, ah, yeah, I'd call and bust you. But I, you know, and one spot when I was bluffing and he went ahead and mugged because I bought him a massage. So, I mean, I, <laughs> particular tournament i'd have probably had to come in like fifth place to break even on the massage right. so, <laughs> it was boy we were just fucking around that's a pretty great story love love to hear it very nice well uh, folks uh, a lot of people uh would say that frank casella is uh one of their favorite players to play with how about you frank who are some of the favorite folks you enjoy uh spending time with at the felt Wow, there's so many of them. I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, obviously, I've got really good friends of mine that I like just, you know, me and Sean D will just get drunk and have a great time. And I got another friend named Craig Chade or Ellie Lezra, for example, Ellie and I, you know, we've gotten completely three sheets to the wind on uh, Omaha Omaha 8-1500 day one at the World Series. It's almost mandatory that you drink when you're doing that one. Um you know, so I, I mean, honestly, I, I have a list of a hundred good friends that I like to play poker with. I mean, sometimes you hate, you know, taking their money, but we all know that that's what the game is about. You get knocked out of a tournament by a good friend. You wish them well. And, you know, Benny Glazer's the one that knocked me out of the WPT thing last month. So I was so excited to see him get all the way to second. I was, you know, texting him back and forth as the days went on. And I was like, this is exciting. Come on, win this damn thing. So, you know, that's just how it is. 
but play with putting your, your chips to good use. <laughs> That's yeah, good. Exactly. That's, Much yeah. better with them than me. I just punted them to him. <laughs> well, uh, just as we do uh, at the poker tables, once in a while, you got to change gears. So we'll do that here with our line of questioning as well uh, to the business side of Frank Casella. You know, normally we get a lot of information, you know, when doing the research. And, uh, you know, again, big shout out to my friend Mike, who uh, helped me with the research. Mike Patrick, uh, thank you. Uh, we get a lot of information from a guest's Hendon mod page, which, you know, we did for you as well. We mentioned it. But for you specifically, we got a lot of info from your LinkedIn page, uh, where it says you're a serial entrepreneur. Uh, you started your first business at age 25, and you've started over 20 companies since then, and you still run 10 of them. Tell us about your passion for business. Um, well, I don't, you know, I, 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 it, it's fun. Starting businesses, I, it's an adventure. I mean, there's nothing more fun probably than starting a brand new business. You get, you know, the name picked out, you get your forms filed, you get your lawyer to line everything up, you go open your first bank account and you open the doors and see what happens. Um, but I've been, you know, I've been really fortunate also because I've, I've got really good long-term people that I hired early on that have, you know, dedicated their career and become part of my family over the years. So a lot of what I do from an entrepreneurial point of view is making sure that I'm helping to pay that forward hmm. and, uh, you know, being there to provide stable uh, incomes and stable environments and lifestyles for the people that, you know, did the same for me and dedicated themselves to me professionally. Sure. I mean, it's one thing to be an entrepreneur. It's another to be a serial entrepreneur. And you say it's fun opening business. For sure. Couldn't agree more. How do you decide what the next thing is uh, that you want to get involved in? <laughs> well, I have a new get rich quick idea every I mean, I some of the people that working for me for a long time get dizzy with the different things I throw at them. Um, but, you know, even right now, we've got four really exciting projects that we're working on. And at any given time, you know, most of them just end up dying. You know, we put some research into it and a little bit of money and we try to figure out whether or not this might be something that's worth doing and we do it or we don't. But, you know, you just got to kind of, I don't know, keep on dialing, keep on smiling. In wake what, up and right. In what way would you say the things that you do and have honed, like the talents that you bring to creating successful businesses helps you or is transferable to poker? Well, I mean, the thing about starting businesses in today's, you know, in a free economy nowadays, it's just a, it's an entrepreneurial thing. It's a, it's a, you know, risking capital for potential reward. And at mm. the end of the day, you know, poker is a little bitty tiny microcosm of capitalism, really. Um, you know, it's a kind of a little bit different angle. You're not necessarily trying to, you know, bluff your way into people's pockets when you're opening a business, but still it's pure capitalism. Everybody's putting their money at the table for a chance to win this much more. It's risk and reward. Mm -hmm. um, on the business side, I was very good at risk and reward. And, you know, that translates out and is helpful in the poker side. Sure. And you mentioned uh, you've been fortunate to work with a lot of wonderful people, people who've been with you for a very long time. Uh, how's Frank Casella as a boss? Um, well, I'm sure it depends on who you ask, but uh, <laughs> got, you know, many, I've got a number of people that have worked for me for over 20 years. So, um, you know, but in any environment, sometimes you have people that love you and sometimes you have people that don't, but I think all in all, I'm a really good boss. That's great. Um, well, you know, it's always fun to discover the new and interesting wrinkles. It's not often you get to ask a poker player or someone you know as a poker player this question. Uh, Frank, you're currently the president and CEO of Scrubtastic. Uh, you've been doing that for 13. There you go. There's the logo if you're watching it on YouTube. Uh, it's got the Scrubtastic shirt on there. Uh, for over 13 years, why medical uniforms? How'd you get involved in, in that? Uh, how'd that idea sort of come to you in the board meeting? Well, I had made an investment in commercial real estate in Las Vegas in the early 2000s, and my mother and father had already moved out to Las Vegas to live in my house. Um, when I bought my first house in Henderson, I was really, you know, I'd been spending, like I was saying at the beginning of the 2000s when I started going to Vegas, if you're going every three or four weeks and you're playing poker, you're not getting a lot of comps, you're running up shitloads of bills on room service, so I bought a house 
And I didn't want it sitting there empty year round. So my mom and dad, you know, they're both nurses and they work hard. And I said, why don't you guys just go live here? I'm already, you know, I'm already paying for it. You don't have to have a house payment or anything. Get a gig out in Vegas. So they came out. And when I bought that building, it was a couple of years after they moved out. And I told my mom, I was like, why don't you do something? You know, she'd been working as a nurse for what, 30 plus years at that point. She deserved to try something new. So she was going to open a medical gift shop um, where she was really going to sell gifts to like nurses. That was the primary angle, what she was looking at doing. And at some point after we started that ball rolling, she goes, you know what? I think we should sell scrubs. And I thought, well, shit, now that's a good idea. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just we came up with the name and, you know, got the business going. And from a marketing and branding standpoint, that's one of the things I'm really good at. Um, when it comes to, you know, our customers, I think we're the best in the business at what we do. Fantastic. Lovely. Well, at the top of the show. Uh, now we have in Las Vegas, Texas, Tennessee, and Mississippi. So if you're in any of those states, be sure you go to Scrubtastic to get your scrub. Sorry, I had to get that plug in. All good. It's uh, scrubtastic.com, I imagine. It is. There you go. <laughs> this uh, <laughs> this episode is sponsored. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, like, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Well, at the top of the show, uh, we teased an occupation that people might not have expected from you, Frank. Uh, we firmly established, and again, if, if you've been listening and watching this long, folks, you know what a nice and friendly guy Frank is. But many moons ago, you were a drill sergeant in the U.S. Army Reserve. Uh, tell us uh, the story behind uh, that part of your life. Uh, all right. I was in high school and I was in high school ROTC. And uh, my plan at that point was to graduate from high school, go to Texas A&M, be in the Corps of Cadets, get commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army. I planned on spending a career in the military and then getting out and going into politics. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I uh, in the in probably the beginning of my junior year. The recruiter was also a friend of ours because he came and did some of our first aid training and stuff. So he just came to me one day in school and he said, there's a new unit that the Army is building out in North Texas. Uh, It's part of the 95th Training Division where we were just going to be drill sergeants and officers. The Army Reserve wasn't anything I was necessarily looking to do, but when he right. came to me and said that, I thought, wow, I could I could go to drill sergeant school. And if you go to drill sergeant school, you get to wear the badge forever. This will defend. It's, you know, it's a really cool badge. And I couldn't imagine there'd been many, if any, officers in the history of the Army that ever had one because you don't really become a drill sergeant and then decide to become an officer. You've kind of already gone enough up the non-commissioned officer's ladder to where that's where you said, I just thought it would be cool to do. And so I enlisted uh, in March of 1985 and I went to basic training at Fort Sill, Oklahoma that summer and um, finished high school, coming back nine months, finished school and then went to artillery school um, at uh, Fort Sill also advanced individual training. And then I got uh, promoted. I got to enlist as an E3 because of ROTC in high school. And uh, I was promoted to E4 at the end of artillery school. And then I went to Fort Sill in October, November to uh, do drill sergeant school and graduated from drill sergeant school and got promoted to E5 on December 5th. So I was 18 years, 232 days old. And um, as far as I can tell, I'm the youngest drill sergeant in the history of the Army. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. What an, what an amazing thing. Um, do you ever get all drill sergeant, sergeant T, you know, at, at, at the poker table? <laughs> like, oh, put that bad beat on your position. Position. Exercise. That kind of stuff. Yeah, I can do it if I need to. Love it. Oh, love My it. kids know. My kids have heard it all. <laughs> What would you say are uh, the highlights uh, or the most memorable moments of your military service? Shooting the cannons. I mean, when you're field artillery and you get to, you know, shoot the, the 155 millimeter M109 self-propelled howitzer, the eight inch M110 self-propelled howitzer, man, that's not something you get to do at the uncle's farm. I mean, you've <laughs> got got to really sign up and do it with the big boys and get to do that shit. If you like to shoot guns, you just can't top those. Those are fun. 
when you said it, I, I hear like Tim Allen arr, 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 in the background. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, you did mention politics. Uh, your Twitter page has a decent amount of, of political commentary. And according to Wikipedia, you did consider briefly uh, a run for Nevada Congress in 2014. Do you still have uh, any political aspirations? Um, I don't, you know, I'm so busy. I don't really put a lot of thought into it. I mean, I feel like if you're willing to stand for office, get elected and do what you feel like is best for, you know, your community or your state, your country, it's something that you should do. Um, so, uh, you know, it would, I wouldn't mind doing it, um, paying back, but I, there's nothing I'm actively pursuing right now. Gotcha. Okay. Well, just one last question then uh, from me before we get into the community question portion of the podcast. Um, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here. You've accomplished a lot in poker. You've accomplished a lot in business, a lot in life. And we didn't even get to, you said, you know, you got nine or three grandkids, nine kids total with your wife. I mean, like, that's an incredibly busy life and you seem pretty darn happy and fulfilled. And you say you're in a very good place. What sort of goals, if any, do you still have across the many different aspects of your life? Um, wow, I don't know. I'd still really like to win the main event of the World Series. I can tell you that. I don't think that's uh, super realistic for me, but shit, I swing away at it every year. You know, <laughs> I days most of my life, I just focus on experience. You know, I, I love traveling. I love traveling with my kids or my grandkids or combinations in my family. We do a big annual trip with our employees. Last year, we did Peru. And we went to Machu Picchu. Thank goodness. I think it's shut down right now. Um, and then this, this summer, we're taking them on an Alaskan cruise. And, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that I live for really nowadays. I don't, you know, I've been lucky. I don't know that there's a whole lot of new professional goals I need to seek and Honestly, you talk to a lot of poker people. It's hard to be disappointed with my poker resume, especially because I only play, you know, six to eight weeks of poker a year. Wow. So, you know, I don't, uh, what more could I hope to even be blessed with at this point? That's a beautiful, beautiful answer and definitely appreciate it. And, you know, folks definitely appreciate you. And, and that's why this segment of the show, you know, we're going to turn to the Cards Check community See what questions that you guys wanted to ask our guest. Uh, we do have a dedicated thread on the Cards Chat forums for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure, folks, to send in your questions. Uh, this is a new name I don't believe I've seen before. Thank you very much, Joseph Nobbs, uh, for sending in this great question uh, for Frank Casella. Joseph wants to know, how did you feel when you won that first bracelet at the WSOP? Wow. You just, um, you're, 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 you're just walking on air at that point. I mean, I, we, we started that day with 20 people left. I think it was a $10,000 stud eight event. Um, and we had to start at noon instead of two. And there wasn't a hard shutoff for that event. There was no television or anything for it. So we just played all the way through till six in the morning. So when I walked out of the Rio, it was daylight. And uh, I think, I don't know if it would put it on Twitter or on my Facebook or both, but I just remember all I said was, I just won my first WSOP bracelet. <laughs> um, right as I walked out, I remember sending that tweet or whatever. Could have been a text. Who knows? You know, I'm old. I forget shit. But anyway, that was, I mean, you know, it's really, really cool. It's definitely worth signing up and, and, and playing. Did you wear it? It's my follow-up, but uh, did you wear it after that? You ever put it on and reminisce or anything like, that? anything like that? I don't have that bracelet anymore. I gave it to one of my sons was with me that night. He sweated me all the way down. So I gave that bracelet to him, but I, um, I wore both of those to two different charity events um, like later that year because both of the people that asked me to those charity events wanted me to bring the bracelets. So it was easy to just wear them if you were going to bring them. Right. Um, and that's the only time I think I ever wore those two. And I don't think I ever wore my third one. Wow. Okay. Where, no, not, not where do you keep it going in, but like, you know, it's like in a special like place framed or something like that in your house. No, like I said, I gave, I gave one to my number two son and mm -hmm. um, my second bracelet, I, I promised to give to my daughter. That's hers. And then my, 
third bracelet's going to my uh, 15-year-old son. So I just kind of plan on giving them away. I've just got to win, you know, six more to make sure all nine of them get a bracelet. <laughs> well, actually, I'll let my oldest son win his old. And I told him he's on his own. So I really don't have to win. Lovely. Uh, March 1194. Thank you so much for sending in these questions. Uh, wants to know, Frank, did poker play any sort of role in your life while you are, while you were in active duty in the military? Uh, no, I don't know. We, we were allowed to have cards, but nobody really played cards. I mean, uh, there was a couple guys that would play solitaire, but I don't think we really, I don't even think we really had much cash. Most of the active duty military stuff that I did since I was in the reserves was training. So it was basic training and then artillery school and drill sergeant school. Those were the three primary things. Now I'd do annual training every year where we'd go be active drill sergeants. Um, we would show up and take over one of the training batteries at Fort Sill. Um, you know, and in those instances, we theoretically could have probably gambled, but you know, when you're, even as a drill sergeant, basic training's exhausting. You know, it's a 4 a.m. You know, we have the trainees out of bed at 4 a.m. to start PT. And you're up with them, depending on what the training schedule is that day. You could be up easily till 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And then you go to bed. So you actually end up probably getting less sleep than the trainees. It's not like we were really itching to play cards at night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Uh, Chica Benita has uh, more than one question for you. Uh, Chica Benita wants to know as follows. It's been five years since you earned your third bracelet. This past year, you were very close to getting your fourth. Do you believe that the competition is tougher now, or is it just a matter of variance in time until number four comes your way? Oh, I'll definitely win number four. I mean, I feel like every World Series, I've got a sh at least one shot where I'm going deep and, and I'm at a final table. I mean, there may be some, I, don't, I haven't really, like I said, I haven't looked at my hand and mob, but it feels like I at least have a shot every year. And uh, I felt like this past year, I actually had like three or four shots. I made it pretty deep in a few events that I was doing really well in and had lots of chips. Uh, next one from Chica Benita as well. Who do you consider the most difficult opponent to play against? If you don't want to say because you don't want them to know, that's okay. In what game? Good answer. I like that. I don't really even know where to start with that. Okay. Um, golly. I guess No Limit Hold'em would be the most fun for people to hear about. I hate, honestly, I hate playing against Doug Polk or Chance Corneth. I mean, mm -hmm. they're... They're probably two of the ones that I hate playing against the most. <laughs> and I love, them both. I love both of them. They're just, you know, especially if you're out of position, it's just such a, you're just constantly in a fucking difficult spot all day long. So, um, but they're honestly at no limit hold them. There's like 50 geniuses out there that are all really good. And it sucks to have to play out of position against any of them. And in the mix, uh, you know, you can name, uh, you don't have to name which game, but in general, as far as an all around mixed game player who I wouldn't say holds over you or anything like that, but more of just like, oh, this dude's tough. Um, you know, I've always thought that Angry John and Marco Johnson are just two really, really good all around mixed players. David Baker's really good. Sean Deeb's really good. You know, I mean, I've, I've got a lot of friends that are just really, really good mixed game players. So, I mean, I hate if I left any of y'all out, I'm sorry. But, but all <laughs> we'll do one more from Chica Bonita. Uh, what qualities, Frank, do you think a really good poker player should have? Uh, but not just a player who can be called good at the game, but also a decent person. Well, like I, you know, I said earlier, I, people need to be treated with respect at the game. So it's just important for all of us to keep a smile on our face and be kind to the, our other human beings. You know, treat people like you want to be treated. Um, you know, that's really the most important thing. I mean, leveling that out to, you know, or like aiming that more specifically just at being a good poker players, you know, tenacity and, you know, willingness to work hard at something, putting in the hours falling off the horse and doing it again. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, tournament poker especially has got to be emotionally one of the most fucked up things that people do to themselves on a regular. 
spend a lot of money to do it. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, trying to explain to people that don't play poker, especially when you, you know, get done with a tournament, the first thing they'd ask you is whether or not you won. And you're like, well, no, one person out of fucking 1400 wins. So <laughs> odds are I'm not going to win. And then they're like, oh, okay. Did, well, did you make money? Well, hell, you barely men can. You didn't, you know, so can't down that road. But yeah, you got to be willing to get back on that horse and do it again. <laughs> that's, that's for but, sure. Life too. You got to be willing to get back on that horse in life too. Agreed. Uh, we've got a foursome of more question askers. Uh, here's one of our favorites, Acid Burn FX. Thank you very much. I always submit some good creative ones. Uh, we've heard this question before, but it's a great one uh, that we ask multiple. Uh, that, that Acid Burn FX wants to know from lots of our guests. Well, I hope that answer. Okay. Well, we'll see. What is something amazing that you did, but nobody was around to see it? what oh wow (laughs) something amazing i've done that nobody was around to see you know i feel like the thing that just pops right into your mind are some of the amazing garbage shots you know you're walking down the hall of the rio for example and you got a bottle of water in your hand that's only about 20 percent full and it's late there's nobody in the hallway and you do one of these like 70 foot shots into a garbage can and it bounces off the column perfectly and it's in the basket and you look around and there ain't nobody there. I mean, <laughs> I've done that multiple times. I'm sure that's not the most spectacular thing I did without a witness, but it definitely jumped into my brain. That is a great answer. Very dude perfect esque for those fans of that channel. Good stuff. Um, another one from Acid Burn FX. Frank, if you had the ability to become invisible for a day, what would you do and why? Oh, wow. Invisible for a day. What would I do and why? Does it need to be good or evil? Is it? I mean, I guess you could go either way. I mean, like you'd like to think, boy, I'd just, I don't know, choke Putin to death on a day like today. When you hear about what's going on over there, I mean, I think that would be a good way to use your invisibility. That's working for good or evil, I guess, depends on the way you're looking at it. They got some really good uh, propaganda. Um, I don't know, though. Other than that, I mean, wouldn't it be fun to, you know, go into the spot where they're minting sheets of new hundred dollar bills and just grabbing a stack and running even before they cut them? You could use them as wrapping paper that year for Christmas. I don't know. What the hell would you do if you're invisible? <laughs> I remember visiting the uh, the Bureau of Printing and Engraving in Washington, D.C., <laughs> and where they do the money printing over there. They got a funny little sign and it says, uh, you know, free samples tomorrow. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You just missed. <laughs> I've always thought the coolest thing, though, to be able to wrap presents with sheets of bills. Awesome. Ah, very cool. Um, let's do. Okay, we've got Lovart. Lovart's his name. We've seen. It has been a while, so thank you very much for sending in this question. Um, more of a direct strategy question. Nice to see this one, um, Frank. What's the biggest mistake that you see players make at stud and stud high low? And what are the top three tips you'd be you'd give to become a good stud player in general? Well, I mean, I think that uh, the most exploitable um, mistake that people that don't play a lot make is just their starting hands. You know, they pick really bad starting hands. They pick really bad starting hands in bad spots, you know, where they're already facing a raise and a, or a completion and a raise and stuff like that. Um. You know, and that's obviously that's pretty common, I think, across the board for poker is picking your starting hands and making sure you're playing them in the right spot correctly against the right hands. Um, what was the other part of the question? Is, um, well, I guess, you know, what's the what are your tips to being a good stud player in general? That would, like I said, that would be the, I think the most important thing is making sure you're picking the correct starting hands. Other than that, I mean... I think a lot of people overfold in certain spots. You know, I think that's that's the issue that I feel like is most exploitable. There's just some people I play with on a regular basis where I, you know, I can almost always guarantee I'm going to get them to fold in a particular spot on fourth or fifth street or whatever with bets. And it's just they get to be too predictable and they fold too often. Interesting. Uh, Red Boy 23 has a pair of good questions for you. Uh, what is the biggest lesson that you have learned from playing poker? About poker? From playing poker. 
playing poker. Um, you know, more than anything else, like I said earlier, I live a charmed life. Every day is a good day. I've gotten to do some of the coolest shit. I've got to meet some of the like my favorite people in the world, some of my dearest friends. Um, you know, I've just learned that doesn't really matter the medium that you're gathering around a table to do. If you take the right mindset into it, it can be very enriching to your life. I love that. Folks, replay that last 10 seconds. That's a great little nugget there. But great answer. Love it. Uh, and one more from Red Boy 23. Uh, what is your poker goal for 2023? To win a World Series bracelet. Come on. That's always the goal. Um, I want to win player of the year and I'd like to do it the same year I win the main event. So it's just that one, two punch. I mean, like I said, I don't really, I don't play a lot of other stuff, although I am playing some of the events in Poker Go Studio next month. Um, I'm really excited that they're running that series of mixed events. So that's going to be fun, but like, I don't usually have lots of chances throughout the year to do much, anything else with poker. And when you're talking about, uh, doing that double, you know, winning the player of the year and the, uh, main event, you know, you get those extra banners up. You do already have one there as the 2010 player of the year. Uh, I imagine you have uh, quite a lot of pride uh, in seeing your banner, your face in the hallways there. Sure. It's fun. Yeah. I love taking like one of my kids in there and getting a picture in front of it. Although I think this year I might fall out of the hall because I think I was the oldest one in the hallway. This year. <laughs> they didn't have, they didn't have like seven, eight or nine. I didn't see Jeff Madsen or Eric Lindgren or who was the other early one? Daniel's first poster. I don't think his was first, first one was up there. So anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to in the hallway. All right. We'll move on to our final question askers. Uh, Crystals, thank you very much for sending these in. Uh, Frank, is there anything that you need to adjust for when going into a televised final table? Well, you don't want to say dumb shit with a hot mic on. I've done that multiple. Um, we, I remember one year also we were doing an above the table camera shot. And we were getting ready to start a live feed. And one of my employees texted me and he says, I know this password on your cell phone now. You've done it on the live feed. So I had wow. to change that. Uh, didn't even realize that there was a live camera right above my head. And certainly didn't realize they had already started the live feed. We were talking about shit, too, because um, we were already mic'd. So we were on a hot mic and a hot camera with our cell phones and didn't even know it. Wow. Um, I, I think they take away the cell phones these days, or at least they ask or, or something like that, just for, for exactly those sorts of reasons. Yeah, I, I maybe. And um, other, I mean, from a playing point of view, I don't, you're, you're not really, I don't think making adjustments specifically because you're playing on TV. I mean, I did feel like when I played specifically on uh, Friday night poker a lot, we were playing, I don't know, like a five ten game, I think. So it was yeah. relatively mm -hmm. low stakes. So I felt like just going in there and getting drunk and, you know, just playing as goofy as possible could only be good. You know, I right. would either, you know, triple up or whatever, or I'd lose a, you know, moderately small amount of money relative to what stakes I would normally play, have a good time. And it was nothing else to be good advertising for in the future. <laughs> I think that was kind of meant to be the vibe of that show. And for that exact reason, because y'all kind of did that, it was pretty damn enjoyable to watch. So Friday Night Poker, if you haven't seen it, it's on Poker Go. Um, and we'll end off with this one. Uh, Crystal says... Frank, you cashed at the 2019 PSPC in the Bahamas. Given that the second edition is almost here, what's some advice you would offer players going into this event? And I think that he means the Platinum Pass winners who are lucky to have seats, not necessarily uh, the pros who are buying in for 25K of their own money. Well, you know, I was, this is kind of funny. I was in Orlando with my son and my son is friends with Jennifer Herman's kids. And she was getting ready to head down there. And she just called me and she said, can you, can you go with us? Cause I'm bringing the boys down. It'd be great if Dave came with. And I said, well, we're actually in Florida. Let me see. So I kept Dave out of school for a few more days and we just flew down there and played that. So that was sort of a last minute thing. Huh. I hate playing really big, no limit hold'em events because I feel like really under pressure to cash. I mean, the, I've done, I did the hundred K uh, once the, the one drop when it was a hundred. 
And then other than that, I think I did that 25K and I did the 40K when we had the 40th anniversary, no limit at the series. And uh, I hate doing those. I just, I don't know why, just going up to that neck notch feels, I don't mind it in the 50K, but I hate, I hate boning up. So I hope whoever asked that did win a platinum pass. I believe and they did. <laughs> yes. If pass winner and they're going down there, the number one thing to do is have a good time. I mean, you know, shit, how much more fortunate can you get? You got into a 25K buy-in tournament for free and you're in the Bahamas. So have a good time and, you know, try to, you know, as often as possible, put yourself back in the moment of what you're living through. It's just fun and enjoy it. Well, having a good time is something we've certainly done right here at the Cards Chat podcast uh, for the last hour. I want to thank everyone who has sent in questions for Frank Casella. Uh, and again, a friendly reminder to all of you out there in the Cards Chat community, we would love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. Guys, please be sure to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you like the show. Frank, before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to share with the Cards Chat community? No, I, you know, I just, I, I love getting on here and talking about that stuff. I mean, I love talking about poker. It's, you know, like I said earlier, it's gotten, it's opened so many doors for me and it's so much fun. And I love to just try to be, you know, positive vibe for the poker world in general. Well, that's what it's all about here uh, at Cards Chat. Thank you very much for, for spreading that positive vibe. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you all for tuning in once again to another episode of the Cards Chat podcast. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at CardPlayerLife. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.